Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And we are continuing our 1995 series this week. Uh, we will be reviewing uh, Wong Kar Wai's Fallen Angels. But first, we'll be looking at the feature film debut of Noah Baumbach, uh, who people may know as the writer of the and director of the recent White Noise movie on Netflix. He's married to Greta Gerwig and was the co-writer on the Barbie film with her that's coming out. Uh, and so this is his first film, Kicking and Screaming, not to be confused with the Will Ferrell movie, Kicking and Screaming. And the way you tell them apart is this movie uses the word and, and Will Ferrell's movie has an ampersand between the two words. That's the difference. Uh, this Kicking and Screaming is about four college graduates who are avoiding making real decisions about their futures. They refuse to move forward in their lives, each in their own unique way. And that's kind of the general overview. The core of the plot focuses on uh, Grover, uh, played by the actor Josh Hamilton, who uh, is one of those faces I feel like people have seen. They've seen this guy around. Uh and it was the dad in eighth grade. It was grade. the dad in eighth grade, yes. Uh, and the premise of the film is hinges on his girlfriend, Jane, who also graduate, graduated along with him, has taken a uh, graduate placement in Czechoslovakia. And this happens at the time where that got split up. So there's a whole running joke about Czechoslovakia or is it the Czech Republic and Slovakia? And so she is overseas almost as soon as they graduate. And that's kind of the big tension point of the movie while he and his friends kind of engage in these various comic episodes along the way. Uh, Ariana, what did you think of Kicking and Screaming? Uh, it's just a mid-tier, almost a little bit below a mid-tier kind of movie. It was a film that reminded me in its tone to Clerks without any of the odd characters to interrupt and mm -hmm. bring any comedy to it. Um some might argue that his girlfriend ends up being the manic pixie girlfriend mm -hmm. in some viewing, but I feel as if he just adopts her entire fucking personality. Uh, I think that's actually the film. point of the movie is that that is what happens. And yeah. like what it is, is like they meet, I think maybe at the beginning of their senior year. In like a writing class. In a writing class. And he is like, and this is done through flashbacks at the beginning of the film it's their graduation party. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that she had gotten the call for the acceptance of like this graduate program and everybody knows but him. So she gets congratulated for it and he's upset because they had made plans for them to move to Brooklyn together only for her to be like, well, this is a great opportunity for me. And so you see, as they're having a conversation, she pulls out her notebook and he's like, do not quote me in one of your little stories, only for him to pull out his notebook and ask for her pen. And then, like, throughout the film, we get to know his friends and roommates. Um, there's one who's, like, super nervous. I think it's Otis. Otis. Yeah. Who doesn't leave because he's like his excuse is like he's too anchors well because he has like a, a placement in a graduate program but he keeps deferring it 
Yeah. Because he's afraid to leave their college town. That they yeah, and from. it's like this um, one friend, I think it's Max, who mm-hmm. um, has a junior girlfriend. Oh, no, that would be... No. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, is that the- Max? He, Max, uh, I think it's Skippy or something like that. Skippy has a girlfriend who's like yeah. played by Parker Posey, and he's like he's like a year older than he's her. A year so older. she's a senior. She's going into her senior year. He's just graduated. Yeah, and it's it's just a, a bunch of white dudes unable to face the fact that they're entering their adulthood. But I like that's the point of the movie, yeah. right? Is he's the Bachman or Bombach is not necessarily on their side. He is making a critique of them. In- yeah, it's. I think it's also, um, it ranges what age do you, when you watch this film and yeah. how close to age are you to this group of people for how you're going to react towards it? Because I feel like some people would have watched it being like, no, I get it. But it was interesting because before we got into the film, you started telling me, I don't know if you're going to hate this. Or just kind of be okay it's with it. It's the kind of movie out of the 90s that's going to divide people for multiple reasons. You're going to have people that don't get the thing that's annoying them about the movie. The director would go, oh, yeah, that annoys me too. Like, that's why it's in there is how annoying it is. Uh, but also that there's a lot more, I think, going on under the surface than a casual viewer might note. And that Bombach is trying to say something about people in his class and in his generation about how they are avoiding dealing with reality and their lives and using academic pretension as a, a veil to protect themselves. Yeah, and I think this was also during a generation where we heard a lot, high school and college are going to be the best years of your life. And now that kind of saying or um, ideology is starting to fade. Yeah. Where we don't, aren't telling people that, especially with the crisis of, you know, college debt. Yeah. And uh, like people no longer say that to people. Um, It's just like, he's acknowledging that these are vapid young men who don't really have, don't seem to have much to offer into the future but are also like within their own way of wanting to grow up. Well, there's some connections between this and white noise, I think, in that both movies, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but they do touch on the idea of there is a certain problem with Western academics and that they try to, uh, trying to think how to say it, they try to derive great cultural meaning from a disposable society because there's these throwaway jokes about like classes that they're taking that hinge on these very specific like pop culture things yeah uh and then you get to white noise and you have the same thing with like elvis studies and hitler studies and how Mm -hmm. they aren't really learning anything it's just like people creating excuses for them to continue to be employed or to sound smart yeah and there's also like their friend Skippy who ends up retaking classes because they're supposed to be like audited classes you can take for free. Yep. Um, and it's funny because it's like this is after a remark of saying forget everything you learned, and um, he starts talking about all the things that he didn't learn, so he's gonna go back to learn them, but he makes no effort whatsoever to study or take it seriously. But he's on his girlfriend's case, Miami, who's played by Parker Posey, mm-hmm. about how she doesn't study enough. And so 
it gets to the point that she's frustrated with him because she's like, why are you criticizing my study habits when you have none? Or like, and also that he's not moving on with his life. He was done with the study part of his life. He was supposed yeah. to be going. Or like get, if he was going to be studying, why isn't he in grad school yeah. versus taking these audited classes? Well, I think each of the, the main characters kind of highlights a different aspect of the sort of failure to launch idea. You have Grover, whose entire plans centered around Jane being with him. And because she's not with him, he can't move past the point he's in. Yeah. You have Otis, who has graduate school plans, but is terrified to change up the routine that he knows and the people he's around. Yeah. You have Skippy, like you said, who doesn't seem as mature as the other people, even though they're not that mature. And he he's, just, like, falls off at the he, end of the he's, he's not a very major character. And then you have Max, who has no, like, we have no idea what his next step is. Because he's so caught up in his personality and being this sort of curmudgeonly person that just disagrees with everyone about everything all and the time. Because that what he assumes is going to be the cool thing. Like he is like very Gen X. Yes, he's very much like I don't care what I'm wearing, but I care about what I'm wearing. I don't care what everyone else is doing. I'm not going to do what they're doing, but I want to know what everyone else is doing so we, they don't feel excluded. You talked about the wearing, and that's one recurring theme in the movie is conversations about clothing items and if they're appropriate or if someone should go change. And I feel like that reflects the simmering anxiety these people have all the time is yeah. they can never be comfortable. They go to like the bar and they sit down and somebody starts talking about the pants they're wearing or the jacket that they brought. And like, is this right for this setting? I don't know. Yeah. And like, it's just arguments. It's very Seinfeldian in that way that it's a movie about nothing. Yeah, because at the beginning of the film, Otis is wearing a pajama top as a uh, like a dress shirt as a dress shirt. And it's supposed, and it's Max that notices it. And Otis always denies when people point these things out, but then it automatically just like agrees that yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then there's a uh, Chet played by Eric Stoltz, who is funny because he's the only character among these men that seems like he's found some sort of balance with his life, but it also involves not moving on from college. He's been attending the same college for like I think a decade, a decade or a little more yeah. at this point. And it's taken like almost every class possible, but he just keeps switching majors and focuses. No, it's supposed it's... to be like he's not finished his thesis. Oh, yeah, his thesis. That's what it was. So yeah, his undergrad thesis. It. Yeah. <laughs> and so he just, it's going to be a perpetual student for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, he works at the bar that they go to. And he just seems very comfortable in who he is and what he does. Yeah, and it's not like the college bar. It's supposed to be what they're like. like the townie bar. The townie bar. Yeah. Which is this funny thing because... They wouldn't have known about the bar had it not been for Jane who goes to that bar. She brings uh, Grover there, and then it's implied that he starts bringing the rest of them there yes. at some point. And yeah. so, again, he is adopting her personality. And when he asks her, like, oh, why do you go to this bar? She never, she doesn't answer because she's so focused on something else. And she was kind of like, no, I like coming here to think. And this so she switches up the conversation because... It feels as if he's about to have a moment where he's sort of like uppity at the idea of hanging out with townies and people who are local. Like, again, it's a superiority thing. I'm supposed to be like, we're only here for college. But then the fact that like now they're in their postgrad year and he can't leave, he has become a townie now. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I found the it's a film that's kind of structured almost like a series of interconnected short stories yeah. where there isn't really other than 
Grover having this sort of pining for Jane and her not being there and not really knowing the status of their relationship. The rest of it's very episodic, almost to the point that like you could adapt this, I think, into a television series very easily. Yeah, and it's like this pining that he has for Jane is almost like undeserving because there are a series of uh like voicemails that she leaves on the machine and one is like repeated maybe once or twice without reaching the the completion yeah it keeps turning it off right before it gets to the end it's supposed to be like he's not returning her calls yet he's envious of chet who's getting postcards um because then yeah and that's one of those where you don't really understand why is chet getting postcards but it's supposed to be until the end of the movie because that's around the time where we see her bring him to the bar in a flashback and then we understand like oh she actually knows how to connect with other people yeah and grover just doesn't and that's why like she is very dedicated to her writing right like she has a notebook before grover has a notebook and it's we can tell that for her, her writing career in this craft is a serious thing. But for Grover, it's just like an affectation. Cause once he graduates, we never really see him writing anything no, and engaging in it. Writing, and it's also this thing that he got a lot of praise during the class. So it's like someone who has talent but isn't going to pursue it beyond college because nobody's no longer putting a pressure on him. Rejection might happen. And that's yeah, yeah you want to just coast off the fumes of being praised in a class the funny thing is she's one that does reject him Mm -hmm. because she's like there's something about your writing that seems perverse like there's something off about it it's not honest i think is what it is and then that's when but sadly enough we never really hear anything about his thoughts on her writing but i think that's kind of what he's so self-centered yeah that like of course he doesn't know much about her he just wants her because He's like, well, that's what happens. I'm a senior and this is going to be my girlfriend and we're going to move to Brooklyn and we're going to be writers. And you think about, that's 1995. Now think about the uh, the cultural perception of Brooklyn, New York now yeah. as a gentrified hipster place where a bunch of white yuppies moved after they graduated college. And then they just kind of overtook it with these sort of bohemian fantasies about yeah. what they were going to do. And then it's... Um... Like, it's not as if he is absent of any possibilities to move. Like, his parents are in the middle of a divorce, so his father comes to visit him. Because I could tell they got, like, Elliot Gould for a day. Yeah, and they're, like, and the dad's, like, I have an apartment in Brooklyn. Um, I want to lend it to you for a year. I have a friend, like, my girlfriend who he's seeing someone like has a friend over at a X magazine. I can get you an internship. So he would have free housing an internship at a like nice like a, a prestigious place but he doesn't take it because Jane isn't there even though he knows it would be good for him and he's just mumbling around being sad that like Jane isn't contacting him when she leaves him several voicemails but he never calls her back only for him to have like a moment of supposed clarity when they leave Otis and Otis finally goes into onto the plane that he goes over to this one, oh, like, like this woman behind the counter and pleads to get a ticket. And after the ticket, like the plane is full and she finds him a seat. But because he didn't plan it through, he did not bring his passport. And so she's like, you can't go on. Maybe you can come tomorrow. And we know that he's not coming back tomorrow. Like, like that's the thing. It's, it was everything is this very in the moment spontaneous thing. 
because when he has time to think about it, he thinks himself out of doing it. Yeah, and it's also because it's like at the end of the day, he is a fucking coward. Yeah, and I think that's like, and that's something where I know like an audience watching this movie, we're so used to a lot in a lot of films, your central character, we're supposed to be in the sh- their shoes. And that means they're often given some sort of, you know, positive traits. Grover doesn't have a lot of positive traits. And like all his friends end up moving on. Like Skippy tells them, I've gotten into grad school. So that's, he's gone. Otis has finally gone to his placement. Mm -hmm. Max. um, Let's talk about Max's. Max is the one where I could see a lot of viewers going like, oh, I don't like that. So they meet Kate, played by Cara Buono, who viewers will probably know her as uh i forget what the kid's name is on a stranger things finn wolfhard's character mike 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 mike's mom 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 on a stranger things and this is back when she was probably like in her early 20s i'm guessing uh but the character she plays is a 17 year old yeah and she's a townie who we never really are explained why she's in the bar (laughs) like and she gets drinks i think too but i guess it's just like one of those where nobody cares she also works at the college in the cafeteria as a server and she ends up uh dating max and at the end of the movie they're in a relationship together yeah and that's where you kind of go like he's supposed to be what like 22 she's 17 yeah i don't think it's like the most inappropriate relationship in the world for a couple reasons he isn't very mature so like it's not and he's not necessarily in a position of power over her she certainly seems to have it together more than he does. Yeah, because he doesn't have a car, she has a car. He yeah. doesn't have a job, she has a job. Yeah, like she seems more of the adult than him. Yeah. And it does bring out like positive aspects in his personality. Like he doesn't seem as grumpy. Well, I think it's also she calls him out on it. So in the film, it seems that Kate knows Grover because Grover tutored her at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, that she found like a, maybe like the college has like something for high schoolers to get tutored and she works at the uh, at the college in the cafeteria um and every time they meet she's annoyed by max because max is always like who is she again like completely forgets who she is and she kind of calls him out on it the moment that they are like alone that she that because it's he comes through the cafeteria line upset because he can't yeah. have a potato and a mane when she's like a potato, the potato is, is the mane. mane yeah and like he got he argues with her well that's how it was a year before and she's like i just work here it's like budget cuts <laughs> like she just has to do what they tell her she's like i don't want to get fired yeah and like that's when he turns around and like starts being nicer to her um when, and she doesn't have a huge role but she's very good in this movie oh, yeah, she's she does totally, a lot of personality she just shows herself to not be like affected by max because i think it's probably like if she grew up in this town she has met so many stuck-up men in her life that she's like your attitude doesn't phase me there's gonna be like dozens of you that pass through hundreds of you that pass through you are not special well because i noticed uh, i always like to look at letterbox just to get a sense of like oftentimes you're gonna find a lot of like millennial zoomer people reviewing things on there and it was interesting the take that they have on this movie is they were like oh, it's incel the movie, or, oh, it's a movie where women are nothing but props. And I feel like on a surface level, maybe, but if you're actually paying attention to like what Bombach is saying in the movie is 
all of the female characters have their lives together far better than any of these men. Yeah. Like, and you're not meant to sympathize. I don't sympathize no, with these men. Because, <laughs> yeah. Like all these these men who are essentially just boys in behavior, if you were to morph them into one person, they would all be the same boring brunette dude. Yeah. Like only Chet is kind of interesting. And we figure out that Chet is ma- like is married and has a son with a professor. Yeah. Like, and nobody <laughs> knew this. And he was just sort of like, yeah, I know. He's like, I know it's like, he's explaining like, yeah, I know it's fucked up. I haven't graduated, but you know, my family's here. He's I in his thirties now. So yeah. It's like, um, and it's like, but every, all the women have personality. Like yeah. Jane has a personality where she's constantly taking out her retainer to talk. And then sticking it out of her mouth, well, which and, is a disgusting habit, well, and she's so funny. She's played by Olivia Dabo, which older viewers, our younger ones probably, if we do have any younger viewers, I don't think we do. <laughs> Listeners, uh, she, not viewers. Yeah, viewers. <laughs> if you're looking at a screen while you listen to this, um, is was the oldest sister on Growing Pains. Yes. And she's one of those actresses that I've always felt like she's very good, but she never really had that thing that yeah it's probably because she kind of like can melt into the character so and she's like she is jane is the most interesting character in this movie yeah and then you have miami who's played by parker posey who like a criminally underused not in enough of this movie not in enough but i do love like the moment that she like rips into skippy she's like oh come on all of your friends are fucking boring ding blah 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 blah, blah. Oh, they, like, yeah they play this game like, all the time stupid yeah. games that nobody wins and he, she's like you're just scared like she rips him in and which is like kind of satisfying to watch and then there's kate who's just sort of like she's doing she's living her life she's doing her yeah, thing she's yeah she's just sort of like no i have to work i'm get, like getting tutored so i can go to college next year and that she'd been saving up money in order to go move out of the place, which motivates Max to start like looking for a job and doing other stuff. Every like every other dude is just fucking boring. Maybe Otis, because it's kind of funny that he's so neurotic. But I think Otis while, Otis is the most charming of the but four guys. After so. a while, that would get just like kind of annoying. It's just a well, because he's of, like a harmless guy. Yeah. The others you're like are treating women poorly, and then Max is just mean to everyone. Yeah, Max ends up like sleeping with miami and then skippy finds out because and it doesn't really and it doesn't really become like a big deal it feels like it's just i think it's sort of like miami was kind of done with her relationship with skippy and skippy just hadn't realized it yet yeah and it was like this interesting thing that like max ends up telling i don't know who it was i think it was maybe like someone ends up telling like skippy like well it's kind of your fault that your relationship ended you can't get mad at that like you've been afraid and like someone comes to defend him and Skippy goes, actually, no, they're right. Like, they're just like, it is a remark that like these guys aren't doing anything. Like all Skippy was doing was putting down Miami and Miami was just looking for a way to fucking end the, end the relationship. Not a great way to try to end the relationship. We're not going to. It's the way college relationships end, which are typically messy and you're immature and you don't know how to break up with someone. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to cheat on them. So they'll break up with you. Uh, it's a movie that fails completely on the diversity scale. It is a whitey, white, 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 yeah. white. So that's one thing, but like that doesn't surprise me about a 90s indie movie also, made by Noah Baumbach. I mean, come on. Marriage Story was hugely white. What do we that is uh, That is something that Baumbach just doesn't seem very concerned with. White is, uh, yeah. like just... Uh, well, Don Cheadle, Don Cheadle. Just, that's what I was going to say. It was sprinkled with some diversity and that was it. Yeah. 
Uh, I think some Nepo babies ad. You're someone who really likes Seinfeld. You would probably enjoy this movie. It has that, like we were saying, it's kind of a movie about nothing. Its characters aren't really doing anything, but having lots of conversations. Yeah, but even if you do like Seinfeld, I wouldn't wholeheartedly recommend it. It's like a maybe. It's a maybe. It's a slower version of a Seinfeld. And it it is interesting to think about this movie and then comparison to White Noise and just the tonal transformation of Noah Baumbach. Because there's, I've seen, I mean, I feel like I might have seen all of his movies at this point. Uh, and the, I used to associate him with kind of this, where it was very talky, very white. Uh, so like this, um, oh, uh, the squid and the whale is a movie that is very like white, uh, smart people kind of talking a lot movie. Yeah. Uh, I think Greenberg with Ben Stiller, very similar. Uh, he directed Francis Ha Ha. Mm-hmm. Which I think was the first shift we saw from what I was used to seeing Bombach do. Because it was more female focused. And it was the the style of it and everything is very different. And then you get something like White Noise that just, I would never have guessed it was the same person, right? It's yeah. It feels like he's trying to be more mainstream and I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing or not. Because White Noise was very disappointing. I think White Noise was just trying something that I can't say that we were ready for. It just feels like something that is a niche that like that for someone else, they'll be like, oh, yes, at the end of that film, when they are start coordinating, moving together, it's just showing you that it's a fiction. But it's just it's just at the end of the day, kind of a boring film. Well, it's, it failed to do like I, I'm a pretty big fan of the book. And it was an instance where like I knew it's not a book that's easy to adapt and it the that is the film is a an example of that. It was not well adapted. A lot of things had to be changed for the sake of the movie. But yeah, I would say kicking and screaming. If you're in a very, you kind of mentioned Clerks. I mentioned Seinfeld. If you're in that kind of a '90s mood, then I think this movie would be good for that. back uh we'll be talking about fallen angels directed by wong kar wai another 1995 movie now this is ariana's second wong kar wai movie she just watched in the mood for love a couple months ago in february uh this was made five years prior to that and the plot there's a lot going on generally speaking uh an assassin his boss an entrepreneur and two women cross paths in Hong Kong as their professional and love lives collide and influence each other, mostly without their knowledge. So this is very much a series of short films that are given little moments where they cross paths with each other. And then the short films are kind of stretched out over the course of the runtime. Let's say. So Ariana, what did you think of Fallen Angels? Uh, Not entirely my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I think while watching the film, you can definitely tell like the beginnings of In the Mood for Love, mm-hmm. especially when the bright or like saturated colors would come in. Like there's a beautiful shot that everything is in green and the guy's kind of like wearing black, but it really highlights what's going on. 
uh, it does take a moment to adjust. That's something that I've noticed, especially like with uh, like Asian films is like there is no like holding back of using like almost like that fishy li- uh, like well, lens. Uh, Wong Kar Wai especially loves to, and this cinematographer, they really love to go bold with the images. Yes. They're not afraid to like throw things at you that are just like stunning images yeah and like it, it like there were a few times that like if you're the type of person that gets a little bit nauseous by handheld like there are a few times i just like oh whoa please well, he's using <laughs> i think i read that he's using a cinemascope lens which yeah. is meant to give cinemascope was one of those uh camera technologies that was meant to be some of the first like giant all-encompassing screen uh, so that you would watch movies on. And so you film it with this very you know, wide angle lens and he does close-ups with that. So it creates this really weird distorted effect because they're typically meant for like big landscapes and like vistas and things like that. But by using that camera style in this story, it does successfully give you a sense of claustrophobia. Yeah, And that's what you're meant to feel. It's Hong Kong. It's a city where people are living on top of each other. It's packed together, which ironic is ironic because it's a, a city full of people, but these people don't really seem to have that many connections with anyone. Yeah, And so it, it's that uh, we talked about previously from uh, Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, where he talks about the loneliness of the crowd. This movie is very much, that's the theme of it, the loneliness of being in a big crowded city. Uh and it also, t- genre-wise, it's playing with some different things. There, It has this sort of crime melodrama going on, but there's like slapstick comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the film is very non-linear as well, too, I feel like. Yeah. It starts out further into the story, and then we flash back to catch up to that moment, and then we crisscross with other people's paths. Uh, one thing I read... That it's actually, it's a movie I have not seen, uh, Chungking Express, which is another one of the films that are considered like one of Wong Kar Wai's like greatest achievements. And this, and it's also a series of interconnected stories. And these were meant to be two of them, but he just kept writing. It kept getting bigger. So he filmed this almost, I think, immediately after. And a lot of the actors come back for this one playing different roles. But they say that if you watch Chunking Express and this, you can see characters referencing things or actors referencing things about characters they played in the other movie. Yeah. But that you don't need to know to enjoy this movie. Yeah. Essentially. Um, uh, it is it's a hard movie to talk about because there's so many things going on. Um, one of the things that reminded me of was 80s dream pop music. If you know what like um the like Cocteau Twins. Where it's just kind of like, it just feels like it's not necessarily the waking world. Because every scene is filmed at night. Yeah. So you never get daylight. And so, and these people just operate at night. And you get this sense of just like, and they're not really encountering that many people. And the scenarios they're in are very strange. Yeah. So it feels very dreamlike. Um, There's a couple scenes I think that were pretty good that stand out to me. Uh, and I'm not going to try to do names because I'm probably not going to pronounce them correctly. So what I'm going to go do, do is sort of the roles because they don't really use their names that much in the yeah. movie anyway. So there's a hitman, mm-hmm. and he has this relationship with an agent 
who she doesn't even have a name. She's only the killer's agent in the script anyway. And she will go, uh, we, we assume that they get information from some third party who wants someone dead. Yeah. Typically in the, you know, Hong Kong organized crime scene. She will go to a location that the target frequents. She'll scope it out. She'll draw maps. She'll make notes of things. No one really suspects her. She delivers all of that information to a drop-off point along with a weapon that she's been given. And then the hitman will just show up a few hours later, pick all this stuff up, and then go do the hit. Yeah. And so the movie opens with the two of them in a room together, and there's voiceover from the hitman saying that uh, it's been 135 days since they've seen each other in person. Mm-hmm. And that something has brought them together. Yeah. That there's something has gone bad and now they had to see each other. Uh, and so you have that going on. And there's a really great scene where he's just basically committed mass murder. Like he went into a restaurant and just shot the fuck up out of like his target, the men that were with his target, and then like waiters that are there too because they were just in the way. And then he gets on a bus to head yeah. back. And it just so happens one of his old schoolmates is sitting behind him on the bus and recognizes him. Yeah, and the guy's a little drunk, as you can tell, because he's being very loud. Well, because, and, like, part of the hitman's thing is, you know, discretion and, you know, get in, get out. So, and, like, the guy keeps yelling his name, and you have everybody else on the bus, so there's this kind of, there's a tension there of, oh, fuck, like... Yeah, you think, like, within the the terms of what we're used to story-wise, this guy's going to end up dead. But, like, they switch her around a little bit in order to help you with the deception of what's going on. And so the hitman, like, lies about his line of work when he's asked about it. And then, ironically, his friend is a life insurance salesman and gives him his card if he ever wants a policy. And so the comedy of that scene is, we know what this guy does for a living, and there's no way he's ever getting a life insurance policy. Okay. Like, that's not good. So the fact that he lies and says that he's married and he has a fake photograph of a black woman and he has a fake photograph of a child that he happened to buy an ice cream cone for which helps with the fact of like if say the police came to him and were like asking this guy well what do you know Mm -hmm. about him he'll offer these details that won't correlate to what's happening so they'll think like this is not the right person and it's such a clever thing that i've never seen in a movie before but i'm like oh yeah that would be smart for a hitman to carry like things that would throw other people off the trail yeah because like then he could just be like i was with so and so i never saw him and he went oh you said you have a but he said that you have a wife and child and he'll like be like i don't this person's lying and so uh, like so it could draw like draw off the trail quickly and then the the agent for the hitman is in love with him yeah that's another big part that's part of the movie where i felt like it got a little too silly because we have these scenes of her writhing on a bed in a leather dress like i guess fantasizing about him and it's on the bed that he sleeps on that she comes over to clean like we also have a scene where she rifles through his trash so she can figure out where he goes, hang hangs out, and she figures out what like bar he goes to, what cigarettes he sm- uh, like he smokes, only for us to discover that he's like, oh no, I've left her hints of who I am because I think he knows that she's in love with him, but he's not in love with her. I know, or it's, he, it's, he is, is in it? love with her, but the, uh, from the hints that I was getting, but he realized it was a dangerous thing for them to be together, so he's like, I I need to end this. he's like this isn't good like he used that love that she had for him because of loyalty and it's also like at the beginning of the film what's very interesting is the way that he's like 
I am a lazy person. Yes. He's like, I do my job, but unfortunately, I need someone to do the administer side. Well, that's like all he does is he will just goes in and shoots people, and that's it. That's his life. Yeah. And then the rest of his day is just kind of like sleeping in the day and then wandering around yeah, Hong Kong. Yeah, and then there's night. an explanation of how like sometimes there's not a lot of hits that go through, and those are what pays most. So that's when he'll go over and do like money collection for like gangs and stuff like that. Um, that's how he ends up meeting this woman who is mentally unwell and and uh, that actress does an incredible job. He ends up hooking up with her because she's mentally unwell. She just is like sort of like, oh no, we were together before and you left. So he's hooking up with a person. Baby is her name. Or she has like a bunch of different names. Yeah, they call it Baby Punky Blondie. Yeah, and so she ends up like falling for him but he's also doing it because again if the police were to go to her and she says they've been together for x amount of time when that isn't the case she also provides more cover yeah Yeah. and he kind of understands that he's he understands he's not a good guy uh versus the other main character who yeah the other main character i liked him more i think (laughs) that man's not bad but i really like this character well he will just call him the mute ex-con he uh loses his ability to speak after eating a can of pineapple slices that have gone bad that's how he loses his ability to speak that's the excuse that they and then he has a very like loving relationship with his father and that's like a big part of his character yeah. is how much he loves his dad we have to also clarify he tortures his dad. oh yes he like <laughs> but it's like it's not it's just sort of like Pranking. playful torture yeah where it's his it's driving his dad crazy but like he's not doing it from a place of spite it's just he loves seeing his dad get so upset about things yeah um but my favorite thing about this character and it's the best scenes in the movie is because he's also <laughs> a nocturnal creature and he wanders around at night and he's because he's an ex-con he just doesn't really have a lot of job opportunities and so he starts to fantasize about like what would it be to run you know a noodle stand what would it be like to run a barber shop and what he does is he'll break into these establishments at night and open them and up. open them up so people who are wandering around at night are like oh this must be like a night barber and they'll go in and he will deliver the services or make the food for them but he doesn't know how to do these things and then also kind of holds them hostage. Yeah, well, I think they walk in thinking it is open, but I think he's also dragged people inside. Well, there's the one recurring <laughs> character who I think it started with the barber shop who realized this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Then he keeps running into the mute ex-con over and over. And the mute ex-con just like grabs him by the collar and like pulls him in. And then at one point, it's an ice cream truck. Yes. That's such a great scene <laughs> that... He's forced his captor into the ice cream truck and is just force feeding him ice cream cone after ice cream cone. And his wife calls, the captor's wife calls, and he's saying, Honey, I'm gonna be late coming home. And he tries to explain. And of like, course, he's like, I'm eating ice cream. And she's like, What do you mean bring ice cream for us? And believe, he's like, like, I can't bring you any ice cream. And she doesn't believe him. And then we have this jump cut to <laughs> his like entire extended family or like friends or something that she brought with her to go see if this guy was bullshitting or not. And now the mute ex-con is holding them all hostage inside and the ice cream truck and handing cream. cone after cone after cone. Like pints of ice cream yes. to people with like a with a candle 
like burning that he won't let them like blow, blow out. Up. Yeah, you have to eat around it. And then the argument is the guy that's being captured telling his wife, like, I told you not to come down here. I told you not to come down here, but you didn't listen to me. And then there's a scene of him like driving the ice cream truck and they're all there eating ice cream. And a part of me is like, you guys could easily like, jump out of this. Jump out yeah. of this. And it's not until like you offer him money does he consider letting you go. Well, because like, this thing is he wants it to be as real as possible. But he's also doing crazy things to these people in order to ensure that like he has the experience of being in this job. Yeah. And then he has a run-in with another mentally unstable person, which I think is meant to parallel Blondie. Yeah, Blondie and the hitman, right? But it's but she mentioned I think she was dating Blondie, like Blondie's bisexual or something. No, I think Blondie was dating someone that she was. Uh that's yeah. what it was, yeah. And so she's, yeah, when he meets her, she's on the phone screaming at Blondie. Is that what it is? She's or screaming at her ex-boyfriend about Blondie. Yeah, who, but she's not screaming. She's just having a weird conversation. Well, she seems like she's very, like, her emotions are really high. Yeah, well, it's like she won't stop talking. And then it's like she's t- telling this erotic story only for the person to stop her and tell her, hey, I'm getting married. And she's like, oh, are you proposing to me? <laughs> and she's in the person like, no, I'm getting married to Blondie. And she's like, what? Congratulations. Thank you so much. She hangs up, turns around, looks at the mute, asking for a dime, calls back, but calls to Blondie to start yelling at her machine. And then only the she call and the, again. And the mute ex-con end up together. And he dyes his hair blonde. No, it's or because it's, Isn't she been be, to a K-pop star or something? No, it's supposed to be like because like because she loved him, his German side started to show. Because he's supposed to be half German, so his hair's starting to become blonde. Like, just naturally, just blonde. And then um, when she just... And they're not really dating. They're just hanging out. But it feels like maybe there's going to be something. Because every time he thinks that they might have, like, a relationship, she mentions her ex-boyfriend or hopes that he was there. Like, I think he takes her to a game or something. And, like, she's like, oh, I was hoping that my ex-boyfriend would be there. And so he thought, like, over, it seemed like to me, my understanding was he thought, like, oh, maybe he would end up leaving her, like, that he would get bored. But she just one day disappears. And he's so upset. And then he's like, oh, my hair turned back, back to black. And that's when he starts legitimately working at a, like, a rocket shop. Yeah. Like, and he meets this guy who's a manager at the place and they get along very well. It's like this beautiful relationship between them. But because um, the guy makes recordings for like his family back to wherever he's from. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's so beautiful. I wish I could do something like that. And that's when the assassin comes in. Yeah, yes. And so it's this sort of they, we've seen all this build up and then it all intersects at the end in this like sad way. Yeah, because the, the assassin is like, oh, they played song 1818, which is this weird it's the assumption that all record, whatever that thing it's is. It's the jukeboxes juke all box. have the same songs on the same numbers, yeah. So he gets, he's like bummed out and he's like, I never went back to that restaurant uh, restaurant again, because it's a song that he dedicates to his agent to be like forget about me. And then he, like, the mute guy gets obsessed with having a camcorder because of his friend. When he has all those recordings of his dad. Yes. Which, I don't want to say what happened, but, like, that that has, like, this sort of tug-your-heartstrings moment at the end of the movie, which I think that ending sums up the sort of general theme of the movie, yeah. which is 
these people are coming in and out of each other's lives and they're not sure how long someone will be there because they might die, right? We have a hitman who's going around killing people. We have people who aren't mentally well and kind of wander the streets and will sort of forget who they are or forget the people they've spoken to. We have people that are in love with each other who the other person doesn't feel that back to them. They don't hate them, but they're just not in love with them. Yeah. And so it's this movie about how all these people's lives sort of touch on each other in brief ways, but have strong impacts on these people as they go forward into life. And so it's a movie where like, it has, I almost feel like it ends multiple times Yeah. because you have all these characters. And so each character kind of has an ending unto themselves. That is true. And just the range of tone that uh, Wong Kar Wai is able to pull off here is so impressive because like he does just complete slapstick comedy. And then this sort of John Woo style, like yeah. melodrama. Because like with the mute, even like the physicality that he like when he like will hunch over and like start just. The, his movements mm-hmm. are just so incredible because it's a comedic thing, but then he'll like be like, "Oh, but I'm so handsome." <laughs> it's it's a reminder of like you know Jackie Chan. He's a great martial art- artist, but he's also a great physical comedian, and the two things are intertwined, right? Yeah, like, like once you are able to learn how to move your body with martial arts, well, that can also help you in other types of movement. Yeah, and like so, his movements were so great. Like, there's that one part when you were introduced to him. That he explains that he's a business owner, but his thought is, well, that he can't really own a business because he doesn't have enough money to open a shop. And he's a convict and that gets in the way. Well, the shops are closed. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just using their product. And he's like cleaning up afterwards and everything. (laughs) So like he goes like there's some shops that, you know, he goes repeatedly because he's just upset that there's a new lock and he just breaks it off and apparently just leaves the money. And yeah, because like, anything that he's paid, he leaves there. Yeah, and so, like, after he worked at the restaurant, because his friend, like, ends up leaving, he just starts doing the same shit he was doing before, which is kind of sad, because it felt as if he was progressing. But then he was like, oh, well, I guess I gotta go do what I know what to do. What I think that's part of it is, like, none of these characters do progress. No. Like, it's just, every time they feel like they might have a foot on the next stair it falls out from underneath them and they just kind of drift away to somewhere else. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's the title of the movie fallen angels. These are people that they're never going to ascend to the heights that the people who, you know, do their lives in the daytime do. These are people that are always just going to kind of come out at night, live in these patterns. Like uh, the way I was thinking about it's almost like jellyfish, right? It's, they don't actively swim they don't choose where they go. They just let these currents carry them. And every once in a while they bump into something sometimes yeah. for a long time, they may not. And so it, that I feel like for me, that's why it gives it that very dreamlike quality of uh, almost kind of like Richard Linklater's waking life or something like where it's yeah. just, you're just walking through this world and you're not really sure who you're going to run into, but the people you run into have these like impacts on where you go yeah, next. Find me of like, um elevated soap operas at times yeah of, like the different characters and and like intermixing in each other's lives requited love is a yeah. big part of it yeah, yeah yeah yeah. uh now comparing this to in the mood for love uh did you see 
similar threads between the two works. I mean, yeah, like I could tell like when they did vibrant colors, they were doing it like it was almost like threading into what he would want to do um in the future. So like I told you with the green and then there's a few reds, like there was pops of color. It wasn't there entirely all the time the way it is with like in the mood for love, but you could tell like he was really already thinking about that before he made oh yeah uh, that was a big part yeah it's like his career has always been very like he has very strong visuals and i don't think everyone always loves the stories because they are very like you think in the mood for love is also very dreamlike and loose and kind of floaty yeah uh and that's the way just his movies are they're more poetic than they are narrative i think yeah um i noticed both movies take place predominantly at nighttime Mm mm-hmm uh, and then I had seen one of his other movies, 2046. And if I remember right, that's also a very night-based movie. So I think he must – I wonder if he's one of those people who does a lot of his writing and his work at night kind of a thing. Like that's when his brain is very active. Uh, and you were saying like you didn't feel that you liked this one as much as In the Mood for Love. Why Why was that? Um, It was probably because it sort of was disjointed. And there weren't any characters that I could really like cling to that I felt like were particularly interested for for me. So like we're saying, there's like a lot of jumps, like a lot of uh, moving pieces and that can be like hard to get into. It's not a movie you can like have on in the background. Yeah. You're not going to know what's going on. Because if not, you're just going to be like, what the fuck just happened if you happen to look away at your phone for a second. But in the mood for love, like just can't uh, there obviously there's a lot in common between like the jumps of how quick things are going because in the mood for love like time passes mm-hmm. very quickly mm-hmm. but they're doing so clever with the edits that you kind of almost go like i thought this was all the same scene but it's not this does that it can go rapid um i think it's just it's it's a different storyline that will hook you versus this one. Like they, this one is fun to talk about. This one is fun to think about. Yeah. But the viewing experience wasn't like something when it wasn't as captivating. Yeah, because for love, once it was done, I remember being like, "That is a great film," and I don't know how you can watch films after watching this and not be like, "What the fuck?" Well, you're talking about the the time uh, aspect. And that reminded me a lot of like Park Chan Wook's work, like Old Boy and Decision to Leave. Yeah. And especially in Decision to Leave, he was doing a lot of those similar things where it's the, I think I'm using this word correctly, the economy of film, mm-hmm. where it's like, how are you choosing to spend the this, like, what are you doing with the space? And so Park Chan Wook does a very good job, and so does uh, Wong Kar Wai of making cuts when you need to so we don't have to unnecessarily watch things happen yeah that doesn't mean the movies feel fast-paced it just means that every scene pushes the the film forward you don't have any scene that just feels like it was in there because it was in there even if it feels very poetic and loose thematically it will tie back in like it's it's there because it's connecting emotionally to some other part of the movie um, and I would agree with you that I do think In the Mood for Love is better. Uh, it's so far the best Wong Kar Wai movie I've seen. I know in June, as part of a Pride series that we're going to be doing on uh, the blog, we'll be watching uh, Chungking. Oh, no, 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 it's not Chungking Express, I don't think. Uh, let me double check real quick. Happy Together, which is 
another one of his movies that has been very critically acclaimed and I think it's older than this one but don't quote me on that okay uh and so i will be interested to know and that may be something we mentioned briefly on the podcast like how that one stacks up with these as well uh would you recommend fallen angel or in the mood for love for someone who wants to watch their first wong car movie i say watch fallen angels first so that way when you watch in the mood for love you don't feel like a weird dip of disappointment and it's again, I it's not huge. I'm not like, oh my god, what like the Fallen Angels isn't bad. No, it isn't bad. It's just like in the mood for love is such a masterpiece that I don't want you to go into Fallen Angels to be like <laughs> thinking you're gonna get that same yeah. like perfection. Yeah, or that level of story versus <laughs> like Fallen Angels, very good if you're the type of person that has enjoyed anime in the past, because I feel like this is has hugely influenced well i mentioned john woo it has very john woo elements yeah to like it has and it's also sort of it's bloody and gory sometimes so i think it's still a very good film well before we go we've got another one of our pop cult picks of the week so these are just something that we came across in the last week we're not going to do a big long review about it but just we want to recommend to our audience so ariana what is your pop cult pick for this week i'm just gonna say it's gonna be paparazzi just because paparazzi paparazzi um it took me a little bit what is paparazzi (laughs) it is a video game where you can take pictures of dogs um i just it took me a little bit to get into this game because i realized there's a i I forget that there's a genre of games where the controllers aren't supposed to be easy. <laughs> well, no, it is supposed to be easy. No, but I'm not, I mean more like smooth. There's like a No, it is meant to be smooth. I think the issue was you have never really played a lot of 3D games. You play a lot of side-scrollers or overhead. Yeah. yeah. And so it's not that the controls are hard. It's, it's You're just not used to not, the controls. Not you're just not, not used to that. Okay, continue. Not, Describe what the game is and why you like it. Uh, so... It's a game where you basically come to this town that is just full of dogs and you're just supposed to take pictures of dogs. And there's like goals. And there's quests. little goals like, hey, take a picture of two dogs playing with a frisbee. Hey, take a picture of a dog with a hat on. Um, and then you get to find out like all the different breeds that they've attempted to animate in the, uh, the game. Uh, yeah, that's that's the game. So if you like dogs and you just want to hang out with some virtual dogs. Yeah, just cool. virtual dogs. You don't get any allergies or any slobbering. You well, and I've watched you play. They're very cute looking dogs. Yeah. They're very adorable. Some with raincoats. Some of They're them doing are, all kinds of fun stuff. They're riding scooters. They're on skateboards. They're just living better lives than I am. It's just an island full of dogs. <laughs> Which sounds like a horror movie, but it's not. <laughs> uh, my pop cult pick is a little off the beaten path from what i normally pick it's a middle grade novel uh so we're talking like eight-year-old to 12-year-old uh this was our pact uh for our listeners who might not know i have a second website called the reading circle.blog yes that's the reading circle.blog if you go there i uh, will post reviews of uh, children's books essentially so i kind of took my expertise as a teacher and i was always coming across titles of books that I didn't have time to really sit down and read, but I was like, oh, that looks like a really good book. And now that I'm not teaching anymore, I'm doing that. Uh, And then writing up recommendations. And this is one I just recently finished. 
Uh, it's written and illustrated by Ryan Andrews. It's a graphic novel. And from the cover, I had a totally different conception of what this book was going to be. I was like, oh, it's going to be like a coming of age story about friends or whatever. No, it's not at all. Uh, do you like Over the Garden Wall? Because that's what this book is. Oh, nice. And as soon as I realized that the first chapter in, I was like, I love this. This is great. Uh, it's Nathaniel and Ben are part of a group of kids who every year their town has this annual autumn equinox festival where they release paper lanterns and they let them drift down river. And this year, this group of kids decided we're going to follow the lanterns the whole way to the ocean. We want to see where they go because every year they always turn back. So they start out and some friends are like, it's late. I got to go back. Uh, and then eventually Nathaniel and Ben get separated from the others and go down a different path. And that's where things start to get weird. The first thing they meet is a fisher bear. It's a bear who is a fisherman. And he's telling them that, oh, no, the lanterns turn into fish. And then they fly, they swim into the the sky and become stars. And I'm going to where that happens so I can catch them in my basket. And then I'll take a fish back and feed my family. And that's the first strange character they meet. And it just gets stranger from there as they have all these different complications. They need help. So if you've seen Over the Garden Wall and that sort of dream logic kind of world where you encounter weird things, but nobody really points out how weird it is because to them it's like, yeah, that's just how this place works. This was our pact, Ryan Andrews. I think it would be a hit, hit with the kids. Hit with the kids. It's the hit with the kids. It's a, and it's, I've seen it come up on a lot of like recommended books list. Well, that was the Pop Cold Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check out our show notes for links to reviews on popcult.blog that are relevant to anything we talked about. Popcult.blog is where we do most of our posting every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and on the weekends. Uh, currently, we're doing a series on the German New Wave, so movies directed by Werner Herzog, uh, Rainier Werner Fassbinder, and Wim Wenders, um, among others. And then we'll also be doing very soon a series on the short films of Ari Aster uh, in honor of his new film, Bo is Afraid, coming out. If you enjoy what we do here and on the blog, we would encourage you to think about supporting us on Patreon. We have different reward levels and some goals that we're working towards. Speaking of that, I want to thank our patrons, Becca and Matt. They both donate at the $10 writer's room level, and that affords them, uh, among many things, the ability to uh, suggest a movie to me every month that I will watch and review. Also, if you subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you will find that there are bonus podcasts that we've been working on. We're in the middle of a series called The Pitch, which is kind of a comedic thing Ariana and I are doing about television shows that she watched. Uh, coming up this summer, we're going to be doing a series called Double Down, where we review movies that Siskel and Ebert gave two thumbs down to, to see if these movies really do warrant the two thumbs down. So, until next time, keep 